So the part of it that I think is freeing is recognizing that you are a separate individual apart from that system and that you get to make your own choices mm -hmm. about how you behave, what you think, how you act. Um, and that, you know, as this somatic experience, then you get to have your own bodily experience and sensations mm -hmm. that are separate from that status quo, that machine, those oppressive systems, however you want to think of it, whatever you want to name it. Is. And that's the part that's freeing is that you get to be that individual body on your own. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today, we're talking about academic, academic advising. I'm joined by three leaders who are here to discuss the basics of academic advising, as well as explore equity in academic advising. We have some really innovative thinkers and leaders. I'm so excited to learn from each of you. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find details about this episode or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. We're launching our first ever listener survey. Please take a moment to share with us what you like and what you're looking for in the podcast. At the end of this month, February 2022, we'll draw three names and send you a Student Affairs Now mug just like this one. Uh, you can scan the QR code or click on the image on our social media or on our website or go to tiny.cc slash survey. This episode is brought to you by Stylus. Visit styluspub.com and use promo code SANOW for 30% off and free shipping. This episode is also sponsored by Vector Solutions, formerly EverFi, the trusted partner for 2,000 and more colleges and universities Vector Solutions is the standard of care for student safety, well-being, and inclusion. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach. You can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. I'm a broadcasting from Minneapolis, Minnesota, at the intersections of the ancestral homelands of the Dakota and the Ojibwe peoples. Let's get to our conversation. I'm so grateful for the three of you for joining us today. Let's begin with some introductions. And CJ, we're going to start with you. Hello, so I'm CJ Venable. My pronouns are they, them, there, and I am the training and professional development specialist for university academic advising at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm joining you from Lincoln, Nebraska on lands stolen from the Sioux, Jaware, and Oto, Missouri peoples. My whole uh, professional career has been in academic advising. Uh, and also my uh, scholarly work has focused on aims of academic advising, the role of critical whiteness studies in higher education, um, as well as uh, queer and trans people in higher education. So happy to be here. Yeah, we're so happy to have you, CJ. Thanks for being here. And Ariel, tell us a little bit about you. My name's Ariel Collitz. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the undergraduate programs supervisor for the Arts Group Advising Center at the University of California Davis campus. That campus sits on the Patwin homelands and I'm currently in Sacramento, California, which is on the Nissanon homelands. And I am originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, where you're located. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, the work that I do is focused on both leadership and academic advising. And 
I also have the opportunity to work one-on-one -on -one with students. So I'm responsible for training, development, visioning, um, you know, guiding students, doing everything from, you know, that first um, look at the university when they're thinking about coming there um, to congratulating them as they're walking out the door in graduation. Um, right now, my research is focusing on the emotional components of doing social justice work and what we're doing um, on the inside as we're navigating um, the changes that we want to see in the world on the outside. Awesome. Well, that could be a whole episode on its own. Maybe we'll have to do that down the road. <laughs> Thank you for being here. And, and Drew, you're kind of responsible for organizing this. You suggested both CJ and Ariel. So thank you for these great recommendations. I'm so excited for the conversation. Tell us a little bit more about you. My name is Drew Puroway. I use he, him pronouns, and I work at the Uni University of St. Thomas. I'm across the river from Keith in St. <laughs> Paul, Minnesota, and the ancestral homelands of the Minnesota Makoche. Um, and I made the leap from res life to primary role advising in 2009. And it was it was good timing because my capacity to do things late at night that required you know a lot of um, presence and thought was uh, diminishing as I approached my 30s and my family was growing. So I traded a duty phone for a crying infant. And uh, yeah, I was fortunate to find a, a role as a primary role advisor at, uh, at St. Thomas and had that for um, eight years. And it was great to be kind of closer to the academic life of students and the university. And uh, for the last five years, I've had an amazing job leading a team of 10 other primary role uh, academic advisors. And on the scholarly side, um, I study professional socialization, theory and philosophy of and in advising and ethics, how advisors approach ethics. Mm -hmm. And you're teaching a class right now, is that right? Do you want to mention that real quick? Oh, it's just wrapping up. I taught um, a class, this uh, J term called uh, Paulo Freire, His Life and Pedagogy, and it was a wonderful experience. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, you can hear from these introductions a little bit about where we're going to go here, but let's begin with a, a little bit of basics on academic advising. When we're talking about academic advising as a functional role in higher education and student affairs, what all does that include? And Drew, I think you're going to kick us off here. Okay, so I, um, I think this is surprisingly more contested and complicated, at least to me, than you might have guessed. Um, but uh, I'll, talk, I'll talk for a minute like conceptually and then sort of get more towards the task-oriented pra practice-based things. So Terry Kuhn from uh, 2008 in our uh, big old handbook of academic advising used um, this definition sort of in an effort to broadly capture what academic advising is. And it's situations in which an institutional representative gives insights or direction to a college student about an academic, social, or personal matter. The nature of this direction might be to inform, suggest, counsel, discipline, coach, mentor, or even teach. Mm. Uh, so everything. Everything, yes. So she, uh, Kuhn goes on to, to um, sort of write about how advising vis-a-vis uh, -vis this very broad definition goes all the way back to Harvard in the 1630s. And um, it it's obviously vague. Um, so, you can then start to think about like positionality. I am an advisor, right? Like, uh, but this can look all sorts of different ways at different types of institutions. And, um, you know, depending on the mission, the type of institution, the structure of the institution, the curriculum. So there's this oft quoted um, line from Wes Hadley that's academic advising is the only structured service on campus in which all students have the opportunity to develop an ongoing one-to-one -one relationship 
with a concerned member of the college community. And uh, this may or may not be true, depending on all mm -hmm. sorts of factors, right? So another like often quoted uh, description of what effective advising is, is from uh, a colleague, Mark Lowenstein, who wrote that the excellent advisor plays a role with respect to a student's entire curriculum that is analogous to the role that the excellent teacher plays with respect to the content of a single course. So Mark's writing about the, the logic of the curriculum and approaching advising is teaching. So mm -hmm. the philosophy and theory that informs an approach um, of which there are many approaches and this leads into particular practices. So onto the like practical part here. So the practices are then employed within encounters with students and often centering around um, discussions of discerning a major. Sometimes it's related to a career or vocation on the other side of that. And other times it's helping the students break, break apart that connection that, that X major leads to X career and living happily ever after or the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, it can also be something about academic policy and its interpretation in a particular situation. I ran into somebody in the, um, the uh, just outside our office suite and explained the retake policy. Um, mm -hmm. it, it can be rendering assistance in a course, um, in, in course selection and registration. Um, mm -hmm. And um, it can be discussions of academic difficulty. It can be um, creating long, you know, course plans. It can be answering really trivial questions like, does this psychology course count for my general education requirements? It can be talking through issues and helping support students because uh, of the universe that happens around their academics, um, mm -hmm. which, um, you know, academics should be challenging under the best of circumstances. So you layer in any of those life things and, and it gets very complicated. So um, at the center of all that's these, you know, a relationship. And these are sometimes short one-off encounters and sometimes they're relationships that last more than four years. Um, in the case, you know, with, with undergrads. And it, it's a series of what I think of as moments of, uh, of beauty and chaos, uh, a beautiful and chaotic moment where a student sits across from you and you say something like, what brings you in today? Or what do you wanna talk about today? And the next thing that comes out might be super trivial, like, can you help me switch into an earlier English section or, uh, it might be something like my professor just said some super racist stuff and I don't know what to do or mm -hmm. I haven't been to class in two weeks and I feel totally lost. Um, so the relationship then is mediated in in and around all sorts of uh, things within your institution and within ourselves as, as, as mm -hmm. bringing what we we do to those relationships. So um, and then many advisors also support faculty in their roles, mm -hmm. both as faculty advisors and in um, dealing with uh, struggling students. Um, you know, they'll, they'll consult with uh, professional advisors sometimes. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, well, I, I'm really taken by this notion of the idea that, that academic advisors are kind of responsible for the overall curriculum, just like a professor's advisor is responsible for an individualized course. I've never thought about it that way. That really makes sense. And sort of embarrassed to admit that I'd never thought about that way. And I love how you've broken down some of the components from choosing a major program to getting registered for classes, to navigating policies, to really building a relationship and supporting uh, students and faculty. Um, CJ, what would you add or build on to what Drew has sort of uh, put the foundation here for us? Yeah, I, I think that Drew's answer was certainly very comprehensive. Um, I think that one thing that has certainly 
come to the fore recently is sort of what Drew ended on this question of, you know, supporting struggling students, particularly as we have entered this sort of student success era, that advisors have really been the primary uh, institutional agents charged with connecting with students who may be in difficulty or are in difficulty. So as we see the rise of tools like predictive analytics um, to try and identify students earlier who may be having challenges academically and persisting, it often falls to advisors to be the ones who proactively outreach to students, who engage in a more case management type of relationship with students rather than just uh, once a, or twice a semester kind of uh, meeting relationship with students. So there's certainly been an intensification around what advisors are expected to do beyond some of those pieces of, you know, course scheduling that, that are often what students immediately associate with their academic advisor. Yeah. Well, and then the, the dark side was sort of being, uh, called on to help with all of the student success is that then isn't there sometimes blame? Why is the student failing out? What, what happened? What did their academic advisor do wrong? Does that happen too? Yes, indeed. <laughs> all three um, of you are not in agreement. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, stuff around that that hasn't fully been examined by the field because mm -hmm. we've sort of moved into this place where of course it's an expectation that advisors are contributing to this retention-oriented mission, um, but that, that wasn't a conscious decision made on the part of advisors. That is generally an institutional mandate saying, you know, we don't have the money to hire new staff, so this is a, an additional role that you get to take right. on now, and if you really love students, you'll, you know, be calling them at all hours and trying to reach out to them multiple times and adding this on top of your existing caseload. So uh, there's a lot to be said about that that mm -hmm. is just beginning to enter the conversation. Well, and an academic advisor can't um, correct in a 20 to 30 minute meeting all sorts of institutional culture and societal issues and student mental health and academic challenges and pipeline issues. Um, Although I'm sure you all try your best, but um, we, we need some community responsibility. Ariel, what would you like to add to uh, how we're beginning to define academic advising here? Yeah, so the thing that you know really struck me about what Drew said is it's this sort of way that academic advisors weave through the entire institution. Mm. It's like there's no part of the institution that an academic advisor doesn't touch and needs to be able to connect the student to any resource, anything that they need. Um, you know, obviously with the focus of their, um, you know, curriculum and the academics, um, but that ability to get the student to move throughout the entire institution. Um, and the, as CJ mentioned, you know, the extra expectation that academic advisors have the capacity within their eight hour day to then help support those, um, you know, students who are struggling. Um, and folks may or may not have the training to do that. They may or may not be getting professional development support from their institutions to do that. And there may not be like clear guidelines within the institution of, um, you know, the number of students that somebody's able to 
um, you know, have in their caseload and what the expectation is for a particular caseload. Mm -hmm. um, I know in some institutions, there are guidelines about the number of students in a given advisor's caseload. I know in some institutions, there are wildly different caseload numbers between academic advisors. So it's sort of like if you're in this group or this major or this program, you have a lot more support than if you're in this other group. And it's not necessarily based on the amount of need a particular student has. It's just sort of randomly the way that funds have been allocated in an institution. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know that institutions are um, necessarily savvy about getting funds to the places where students need them. Um, you know, we've got better data tools, but mm -hmm. I don't know that we're using them um, the best that we can at our institutions right now. Well, and I would think that a lot of these funds are sort of retroactively after the fact, ad hoc, added on, not added on as things go, rather than saying, let's really look at all of this together. I really appreciate that foundation. I'm, I'm kind of really feeling the, the really great and awesome breadth of the role of an academic advisor. The flip side of that is kind of the overwhelming pressure to know all the things, fix all the things, solve all the things, tend to all the things, repair all of the things um, that comes along with this. Uh, I, I want to move us on to a couple different models. Um, Ariel and I were talking before we hit record about sharing an undergraduate institution. Uh, and at least when I was there, we overlapped a little bit, we're, we're finding out. Um, uh, Hamlin University had a model where faculty who taught a first year seminar were your academic advisor until you declared a major, then you moved to another faculty member in your major who was then your academic advisor. And I love that model. It made so much sense to me. I had great connections with those faculty. They were really allowed someone to be connected to me in lots of other ways. Um, but then I moved beyond that and started seeing models of professional advisors where that was their primary function, doing this with a lot more professional development, uh, time, uh, and, and I really saw the benefits of that model. Um, and some campuses have a, a bit of both, right? Some, some over here and some over there. So help us understand some of the considerations for these different models. What's kind of the rationale, the upsides and downsides? And Ariel, let's let's lead off with you. Yeah. So you know, there's lots of institutions that have um, a mix of different models, right? So one is a heavy weight on the professional academic advisor model. So that's someone whose primary job is to advise students. And at a lot of institutions, those folks also have other duties along with that. They have administrative responsibilities that support um, academic department um, things that need to be done. So that may include scheduling classes. That's often the thing that academic advisors will do. Um, or other things that have to do with students' registration and enrollment um, as well. Um, so that's the like primary um, advisor model. Um, a lot of institutions have primary advisors, and then they'll also have some level of faculty um, advising. Um, so for those folks, they would generally go to the primary advisor to get like their registration hold taken care of, but then they would get like mentoring or some sort of specialized academic advising from their faculty advisor. Um, and then there's other institutions where they have just a, a faculty advisor who's the person who takes care of their all of their advising responsibilities. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for like the larger public R1 institutions, that's where you're going to see more of those 
specialized um, professional academic advisors and those smaller private liberal arts colleges are where you're going to have more of those just faculty advisors. Um, you know, I think that the interesting question about this is, you know, culture obviously of the institution, you know, what is the field that the campus is looking for to have students experience as part of their advising um, is one of those considerations. Another thing that I think is really interesting to think about is the structure that the campus has, you know, like what the campus says we explicitly want to do, and then the kinds of activities that the campus incentivizes. Um, you know, particularly around faculty advising. So faculty in campuses where they have a really high um, priority for doing research and faculty are also expected to have advising responsibilities. How are faculty encouraged and compensated for those advising responsibilities? You know, let's say faculty get a course release to do their advising, but then a high priority is put on research and they're compensated and encouraged to do that research. Are faculty tempted to take that course release and spend that time doing their research or doing advising if there's no way that there's accountability for that advising or you know if it's sort of like teaching and then service is down here but research is really held up in high esteem um, so, and same thing with professional advisors, like what is the campus incentivizing? How are they prioritizing the work that folks need to do? Um, and then like, what are the results that they're getting from the incentives that they're mm -hmm. um, actually putting into place, not just the structure that this, they say they want to use? Yeah, awesome. CJ, what would you add about these different models? Well, so this also dovetails nicely with Ariel's earlier comment about sort of the haphazard way that students are going to experience advising based on distribution of resources. There are many large institutions that are highly, you know, sort of decentralized that may use multiple of those models on the same campus. So a student in one college might experience exclusively faculty advising and a student in a different major might exclusively experience professionalized advising with an assigned advisor. Um, so there's those pieces about the student experience, but then we've also seen the ways that uh, sort of new and creative ways of uh, adding things to advisors' plates um, can take the form of uh, roles that are split between advising and recruitment responsibilities. Mm -hmm. We see uh, many campuses have moved to expect advisors to be able to also do career development work. Um, we've seen in some cases advisors who have uh, departmental responsibilities like being the internship coordinator for a department. And so uh, campuses, I think, are trying to explore ways in a climate where resources only seem to decline mm -hmm. to be able to sort of pick up the slack as they're, they're not able to continue having individual people for doing all of these roles. And it's not 100% clear <laughs> that there are considerations about what that does to the quality of advising that students receive. Because if advisors are also attending uh, evening and weekend recruiting events, you know, how, what is it like for them when they're actually uh, on campus trying to see students? 
if they're responsible for some of these other outside uh, departmental responsibilities, you know, what does that do? So there are all of these pieces that are really shaping what advising is like for students um, that make it very different, not only campus to campus, but even within the same campus. Yeah, I'm really hearing the, uh, uh, one of the themes that we hear across all of our episodes in the podcast is just being asked to do more with less, more with less, more with less. Uh, and I think that was a really generous, not 100% clear CJ. So thank you for that. Uh, Drew, what would you add here uh, about these different models? Well, uh, yeah, so there's this idea that we we get creative and um, uh, in 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 advising. So on my team, I've got a an advisor who's primary, you know, primary role advisor, but is one of our school certifying officials with the VA and focuses on that. So there's there's these different focuses too that that, that uh, foci uh, that come into uh, to the the student populations that student that uh, advisors work with. So um, a couple of my team members are nearly exclusively focused on international students. Another um, advisor who um, is focused on a particular population of, um, of students who have transitioned from um, a, a two-year program we have within our institution and, and supporting students there. So that, that um, yeah, there's, it, it, that's completely different than when I started and everybody was a generalist um, academic counselor in our, our department. And, and then even other things besides like the work with students, um, you know, there's, the, the proliferation of technology around advising has caused us to bring somebody into our team that's willing to sort of be the champion of, of those things. And that's, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's a, something that's, that's certainly been a, a you know, we're, we're talking about current events in, mm-hmm. in advising. I think that's a, um, there's, there's just a lot of um, increased rate of change in, in that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, um, just kind of quickly, you're talking about some of these changes going from generalist advisors to more specialized focus on programs or student populations or things like that. Is that a trend that, that we see kind of moving in that direction? Or is it more like I see in housing and residence life where I see equal amounts taking housing and residence life and separating them as I see merging housing and residence life? Doesn't seem to be a trend either way, but just seems constant. Is there a trend toward more fewer generalist advisors and more specialized or not? Is it just kind of moving each way? Um, And is there a trend toward more faculty advisors versus more professionalized advisors or not? Quick thoughts? I think in general, there's certainly a move away from faculty advisors. Uh I think that uh, in general, the capacity to (laughs) ask, staff members to take on new duties, to uh, serve increasingly large caseloads is something that you you can't do as readily with faculty members. And so I, I think that we've seen a shift also as part of this sort of student success movement of if we have somebody who's dedicated to doing this work with students, we also have greater control over the quality of advising mm-hmm. that students receive. So I think that's certainly a trend not as sure about changing models. Okay. Great. Well, thank you. Well, uh, as we heard in your introductions, all three of you uh, are really focused in in really different ways around uh, equity 
in academic advising. And uh, our audience is super interested in these conversations about different models, philosophies, mindsets, approaches uh, that can bring equity uh, more centered in our work. And they're also interested in really practical, pragmatic tools and approaches and strategies. Um, so love to hear from all three of you about uh, what's, what you see emerging either in your scholarship or in your practice, uh, what you see as trends and some recommendations you might make so that we can better uh, center equity in academic advising work and in the institution's work and better serve all of our students. Uh, CJ, we're gonna let you kick us off on this one. Sure, so um, two things that I, I see from my work and as uh, trends within advising, certainly there is a move towards uh, a stronger emphasis on the idea of uh, advisors being advocates for students, um, saying that uh, advisors should be expected to look for patterns when they're meeting with students that indicate that there are systemic barriers at the institution and advocating for those things to change. Um, receptivity to advisors doing that is certainly highly varied, um, but I think that in terms of a skill set, uh, a lot of folks are seeing that, that that is something that advisors really need to be able to effectively serve students. Mm. Um, in terms of my own work, I've really made a, a turn towards trying to think with um, decolonial and settler colonial thinkers around the role of higher education and kind of questioning a lot of the um, <laughs> uh, closely held beliefs about what the purpose and aims of advising should be if we understand the institution as fundamentally a force for settler colonial expansion. And so I think that as we continue on, there's uh, going to be an increasing look at how some of these more critical theories can come to bear on really the purpose of advising. Whereas in the past, many of those purposes were sort of unquestioned that um, of course we are agents of the institution. Of course we are struggling to balance allegiances to both students and to our employer, um, but really questioning how much loyalty we should have when we see the level to which institutions can be oppressive, not only towards students, but faculty and staff, communities, um, and, and the ways that those pieces um, are really raising a lot of ethical questions about uh, our capacity to sustain the institution when sustaining the institution ultimately means sustaining oppression in that way. How might that purpose shift? Um, you talked about some of the ways that maybe we wanna shift away from. If we do make that shift in purpose, what might we be shifting toward? So I uh, have been thinking a lot about um, a teeny tiny book uh, called A Third University is Possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, by La Paperson. And uh, in that book, uh, the author advocates for uh, those who work within the settler colonial university um, to rethink their role 
and uh, look for opportunities to uh, press back against oppressive structures in ways uh, that your employer may not approve of. Um, and so really starting to think about, you know, what are the things that we can do when no one is watching? What are the things that we can not ask permission to do uh, and make use of the privilege that we have as people who work for the institution for myself and my work in critical whiteness studies? I think a lot about what level of risk I can take as a white person who talks a lot about race, uh, that other folks may be at an increased risk compared to me. So really thinking about, you know, I don't particularly want to get fired, um, but I also know that there are things that I can be doing, decisions that are in my purview that uh, I can make around, I mean, in my role, making decisions about the kinds of professional development opportunities that I provide and mm -hmm. making a conscious choice to center equity and social justice as part of all of those opportunities mm -hmm. on our campus uh, is something that may or may not align 100% with the desires of the institution, but is a way that I can try and equip other people to do that kind of advocacy for students. Um, and so you certainly get into some um, <laughs> challenging territory at times, but it's really about forcing us to come to grips with what it means to continue to sustain the status quo in ways that uh, we don't like to think about because it would require us to acknowledge just how oppressive our institutions can be towards students, faculty, staff, communities, and on and on. Yeah, I love this uh, the third university, a, a great reference. We'll make sure we get that in the show notes and also um, shifting away from oppressive systems and how, how do we create more liberatory structures and more liberatory experiences for, for students, right? Both uh, organizationally, structurally, but also on that individual level as well, the both and there. Ariel, what are some of the equity-centered approaches and practices that, that you're doing, that you're seeing, that you're, you're thinking about? Yeah, so... I'm glad that I get to go after CJ to talk about this. Um, you know, that that status quo and some of the ways that we maintain that um, are through like policing ourselves. Um, and something that happens, um, you know, when something comes up, there's like an oppressive structure and we ourselves will contribute to the maintenance of that. And sometimes it's as simple as to contribute to the maintenance of that keeps ourselves comfortable mm -hmm. and to break with the maintenance of that is to be uncomfortable. And so what can we do to break with the status quo and manage the discomfort that we experience as we decouple ourselves from that system? So, but that's an emotional experience that we have, right? We might feel angry or we might feel sad. Um, we might Afraid. feel frustrated. Yeah like any of those emotions could come up as we experience that process. And so that's what I'm really interested in is that emotional uncoupling of the status quo. I mean, it's literally something that we feel in our bodies. So it's like we've taken the status quo and we've embodied it, it's physically become part of us. So how can we take that status quo, take it outside of our bodies 
so that we can stop maintaining those structures. Um, so that's what I've really become um, interested in. Because I think that until we can start doing that work, it's really hard to do that equity work because we're like fighting with ourselves internally about, mm -hmm. do I make myself uncomfortable in this situation? Do I maintain my comfort in this situation? But once we can figure out what we need to do in our emotional space to move forward mm -hmm. and deal with that discomfort, then I think that that equity work just becomes that much easier for us. Yeah. So you're really positioning the, the emotions and the, the somatic experiences of the systems and structures in our bodies as a big obstacle. As long as I'm caught up in my emotions and the tension in my shoulders, then I'm focused there rather than on the change I want to make or this student needs very something very different for me than I planned on yep. in our 20 minutes. Yeah, um, and it's it a really critical thing to acknowledge and recognize and work through so that the focus can be on on the change or the service or the student, right? Yeah, and that's difficult work to ask um, folks to do, but it's like freeing work to be able to do that, mm. um, to be in it, or in some cases to get to the other side of it where you can say, I'm gonna say the thing in the meeting that's gonna disrupt the status quo and I don't care, or I can handle the sensations in my body that are uncomfortable that are going to come. Or I'm, or I'm excited about it. I'm excited about the juice and the energy and, and the thing. Could you just say just a little bit more about, you, you talked about how it is hard work and some people don't think it's uh, should be a part of their work life to explore emotions. Um, but you said it's freeing. Um, could you say just a little bit more or, or maybe an example about that part? Yeah. So the part of it that I think is freeing is recognizing that you are a separate individual apart from that system and that you get to make your own choices mm -hmm. about how you behave, what you think, how you act. Um, and that, you know, as this somatic experience, then you get to have your own bodily experience and sensations mm -hmm. that are separate from that status quo, that machine, those oppressive systems, however you want to think of it, whatever you want to name it. And that's the part that's freeing is that you get to be that individual body on your own. Yeah. Beautiful. Jura, I'm sorry you have to go after both of those. I know. I was like not sure if it was appropriate to use the reaction buttons in the fancy <laughs> podcast, but like I wanted to do all the hearts here. Um, <laughs> um, what would you add, Drew? Well, I think. I mean, it's so easy with, with what advising is to get, to, like, it, it goes to power and control real fast. Like, yeah. um, some dean or hire has thrown a bunch of money at advising to be the panacea of retention. And so it's like... Well, I'm, let me just interject. I was thinking about that as CJ was talking about um, the shift from faculty to staff, uh, sort of, and CJ didn't say this, so I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like faculty might be more resistant where staff are easier to control because they don't have tenure, they don't have some of these protections, they don't have a faculty senate, and we can just make them do it. And if they don't like it, we have control, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think um, in thinking about like what's really maybe radical or, or is... Um, you know, acts of disobedience. Um, I talked to an advisor who was really frustrated that um, some dean was like approving something from some privileged squeaky wheel student. And so this advisor went out and was like, I'm gonna 
dig in the data and I'm going to find every single other student in this situation that could get the same exception to the policy that didn't have the like privilege to like whine or, you know, whatever, engage mm-hmm. like, and um, I thought, you know, wow, that is like an, a, just a great example of, um, I guess it's, 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 you know, throwing a wrench into the system. It doesn't necessarily change the system, but it, it frames your practice, mm-hmm. you know, looking for those things. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of taking things in another direction, like, um, you know, if, you're, if your institution's mission is something to do with like the common good and you're, you're sort of shaping students' perception of their own education, um, you, you, can, you can, again, take that 40,000 foot view of the curriculum and, and you, have, you have some ability within those interactions to point students towards uh, critical consciousness. Um, so when you talk about the curriculum, you have to deal with the unjust implications of that. So if you're, and are um, students thinking about their education is making them sort of like more or less free? And is it, is, is it giving you a more critical comprehension of what freedom even means? Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and that's something we so desperately, I think, need in our society right now. Is of, um, so um, it's, it's not, yeah, you're not going to start some internal revolution in a 30-minute advising conversation, but it, it's, it's that hope for the the future. I'm, I'm in, in, in my approach to advising, like, um, I'm, I, I, I have lots of hope and, and little expectation of, mm. <laughs> of that, but, um, we also can serve like, and this is a within the system sort of approach. It's not, it's not, uh, the revolution, but it's like, um, we are interpreters of the institution for, for those who do not have the experiences um, coming in, and again, without an eye towards that, this this whole relationship is a lot of power and control, and and that's very much I think how it it gets framed in the minds of um, up, like administrators, um, and and unfortunately, not framed in the minds of like the the the, the awareness isn't always there um, that that being that interpreter, you have to really be rooted with your students. And I think um, in a lot of those conversations, it's, it's really hard for a room full of people with fancy degrees to um, get past like a deficit um, way of thinking about students. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you, yeah, I want to go back to, um, the, the really great example you gave, I mean, uh, the definition of privilege is advantages that some people get um, that other people don't and advantages that some people get that everyone should get, but they don't. And so sort of, you know, I, I can't override the Dean uh, in giving this uh, exemption, but what if everybody who needed it got it too, right? That could be uh, re- really uh, disrupting things. And I'm so glad you chimed in there about a deficit model approach, uh, moving away from that to what are this, what do, what do we, uh, what does everyone have to offer? What are they bringing? What are they already knowing? What's the lived experience? What's the richness of that? 
Um, we got a little bit before I want to move to our, our uh, closing question. So CG, CJ, Ariel, anything the two of you want to add here before we move to, to wrapping up? I'll just, I'll add a couple of specific things about centering equity in academic advising. Um, you know, I think it's really important to have conversations with students about identity, about who they are. Um, and this does not just mean, you know, having a conversation with students of color um, or trans students or, um, you know, students that don't hold privilege. Um, but having a conversation about identity with students who do hold privilege. Um, and then, um, you know, identifying ways to create equitable environments for students. So, you know, like, what, are, what do folks need? You know, so like, are the bathrooms in your building available and accessible mm -hmm. to all students? Is the seating in your building available and accessible to all students? You know, just really simple things like that. Who, who is my student population and what, it, what is it that they need and how can I advocate for that in really um, simple ways so that they can physically come to my office and sit with me? Because if they can't do like, the number one thing of getting to you, then you're not as an advisor um, gonna be able to get to the next step of having that deep and helpful conversation with them. And how do they see themselves in the space, in the art, in the examples, in the people, and, and feel seen in, the, in their experience there? Yeah, awesome. CJ, you want to add anything here? Yeah, um, I had two thoughts. First of all, I just have to say the first time that I heard Drew pose the question of how is your education making you less free as a way to engage in advising with students? Um, was truly a transformative moment for me um, and is some, something that I uh, continue to be haunted by uh, in thinking about that power relationship between advisors and students. Um, that's part of the reason my um, <laughs> concerns about some of the technological advances around things like um, early alerts and uh, predictive analytics have really come to the fore because those are all fundamentally premised off of a deficit way of thinking about students. You, mm -hmm. you can't develop some sort of scoring model without ranking students. You can't develop a, a sort of a a color-coded rating system or a numerical rating system without considering you know, some of those inputs that are entirely out of students' control, like what high school that they went to, what their race is. And starting from that place of saying, you know, all of the students of color are gonna get a lower rating on this predictive analytics tool because we know that there are these associations between who actually graduates from this institution and those demographic categories making those decisions based on those kinds of tools is an expression of power. And so really starting to critically analyze how we use those tools, uh, why we use those tools, engaging in really thoughtful discussions about what are the implications of that way of 
sort of sorting and managing students uh, as coming from this position of based on this score, that means we know something about you. And so I'm going to act in a particular way because I know what's best for you based on this tool that's supposedly telling me something. Um, it is really uh, something that has become very commonplace um, and has not really been critically examined yet. And so I think that there are lots more conversations coming. Uh, I can say I'm in a couple of different writing projects that are starting to explore that now, but really to say that some of those power dynamics are still really underexplored in advising because for many advisors, the idea that, you know, students come to me because I have expert knowledge and the students should follow the advice that I give them. So this fundamentally unequal power dynamic is just the way things are for so many advisors. And so really starting to grapple with what it would look like to have a less hierarchical kind of relationship with students, I think is something that uh, it's a conversation I'm really excited for. I think that uh, Drew's scholarship around a, a critical pedagogy kind of approach to advising uh, is a great start. And I think there's much more work to be done in thinking about what, what that could look like. Yeah. Well, um, wow, we, 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 we've covered ground from the emotional experiences in our bodies of oppressive systems to troubling predictive analytics and everyone, everything in between. So thank you all so much. We're, we are running out of time. Uh, this podcast is called Student Affairs Now. We always like to end with asking folks, what are you thinking, troubling, or pondering now? It might be something you're thinking about in your scholarship or in your practice, or maybe just something that's coming up for you as we move through this conversation. So we'll give each of you a chance to, to share what's, what's with you now. And if you also want to share where folks can connect with you, that would be great and welcome as well. So Drew, what are you, what are you troubling now? Well, um, I... CJ's uh, comment is actually something that I um, do think about. And I had mentioned before, like the proliferation of technology and, and surveillance technology in mm -hmm. some ways, you know, that um, a CRM helped my team better manage the follow-up we do on academic alerts. And it removed the emotional connection to the, the students it became a game of digital whack-a-mole mm -hmm. you know we're just ch -ch 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 -ch. um it and and so that's an interesting little piece of uh what uh, so, so someone i talked to once called uh like cyborg sociology or something like that <laughs> uh, and um but i also like i i am just troubled by oh we have this system and but then um, there was a, a group of students that um, they're like, well, they're getting D's and F's. Why, why were there no alerts? And it's like, because the students are great and they're like doing the things. It's just that like the support services in this particular situation are not uh, culturally responsive. Like, mm. um, so uh, it, it's, a, it's a big investment in something that I think in some ways like uh, just can fundamentally change the work. And it's, it's real easy, I think, for advisors to fall in the trap of like, um, if, you're, if your biggest, fanciest tool is a degree evaluation, 
you recenter so many things around that, um, you know, hundred thousand dollars worth of app that your institution may have have gotten, and that's, yeah. So, yeah. so like we're getting closer to just pushing widgets out the door and away from the humanity of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ariel, what's with you now? Um, so what's troubling me now is this push to always be doing more with less. And I'm wondering where the room for our humanity is when we're always doing more um, with less, because that seems to be the one thing, as some of this conversation has brought up, um, keeps getting pushed away. Mm -hmm. Great. How about you, CJ? Uh, well, you, you've heard a bit of some of the things I'm thinking about. One uh, other direction my thinking is going is I recently started reading um, Pleasure Activism mm -hmm. by Adrian Marie Brown. Um, and so I'm, I'm really starting to think about if we know that certainly across higher education and student affairs, it's the same in advising, that there's a significant departure from the field within the first five years, um, trying to start thinking about, you know, how does uh, pleasure factor into people's uh, thinking about their work? And what are the ways that we've uh, been disciplined into per finding particular things pleasurable? So this like, of course, you have to be intrinsically motivated by your love for students. And that is the primary like satisfaction you receive from your work is the messaging that a lot of people receive. Um, and then when you get into a role and find that that may not sustain you at every moment, um, I, I think that there's uh, certainly more work to be done. I'm trying to do some more thinking around you know, what does it look like to center pleasure in our work in advising and across higher ed student affairs? I love that. I love that. A, a great author I'm familiar with. I haven't read that one, but I think it's a, you're making me think about new things and some new possibilities there. So, well, thanks to all three of you for joining us. This has been terrific in all that you brought and all that you shared. Uh, thanks for your leadership and your contributions today. We also want to thank our sponsors for today's episode, Stylus and Vector Solutions. Stylus is proud to be a sponsor of the podcast. You can browse their student affairs, diversity, and professional development titles at styluspub.com. You can always use the promo code SA now for 30% off, off all books plus free shipping. You can find the Stylus on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at Stylus Pub. And Vector Solutions, how will your institution rise to reach today's socially conscious generation? These students report commitments to safety, well-being, and inclusion are as important as academic rigor when selecting a college. It's time to reimagine the work of student affairs as an investment, not an expense. For over 20 years, Vector Solutions, which now includes the Campus Prevention Network, formerly EverFi, has been the partner of choice for 2,000 and more colleges and universities and national organizations. With nine efficacy studies behind their courses, you can trust and have full confidence they're using the standard of care for student safety, well-being, and inclusion. Transform the future of your institution and the community you serve. Learn more at vectorsolutions.com slash studentaffairsnow. And as always, a huge shout out to Natalie Ambrosi, the production assistant behind the podcast, who makes us all makes us all look and sound good. And don't forget to complete our listener survey in the month of February to uh, win your chance at 
a mug just like this. You can find that on our social media, on our webpage, in our newsletter, and at tiny.cc slash survey. I'm Keith Edwards. Thanks again to the fabulous guests today and to everyone who's watching and listening. Make it a great week. Thanks all.